Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. This is my call-in show. I'm Jesse Single. I'm the host. I uh, God, what do I do? What does anybody do, really? I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a journalist. A uh, a gadfly. I'm a Twitter addict. And uh, yeah, this is coming to you live from New Orleans. Part of a road trip I'm on, I came back to my place because I was supposed to record uh, an episode of Blocked Reported, my podcast with Katie Herzog. Then she bailed on me. So now I'm here all alone talking to you guys and you win as a result. Um, just some housekeeping stuff out of the way. Uh, other few other episodes recently you might be interested in. That was a very good sentence. A few other recent episodes you might be interested in. I interviewed the critic Alice Gribben on what she calls the empathy racket. Uh, basically, this idea that art, a main purpose of art is to promote empathy. I talked about the new proposed standards of care for the um, for transgender and gender nonconforming youth, puberty blockers, hormones, stuff like that. And I talked about how heterodox is a silly and misguided label for journalists and academics to apply to themselves. Those are all in the show notes or will be, so you can check those out. Um, and then Tuesday of this week, I'm talking to Batya Ungar Sargon about how journalism became a field for rich kids and why that matters. That's the subject of her book, uh, which I recommend, and I'm looking forward to talking to her about. This episode is mostly going to be just me taking your questions. Um, so if you have a question, feel free to get in the queue now. I just want to go on one little rant beforehand. I, I, I saw a... Um, tweet storm by a guy named Dr. William Horn. He's a postdoc at uh, Villanova, I believe. This was viral or, or viral enough that Nicole Hannah-Jones, quote, retweeted it approvingly. That's how I saw it. Um, I just want to read part of it. Last week, during our last section session of my white backlash graduate course, my students asked me if I thought the U.S. would descend into a civil war during the next decade. I replied that the current situation is much more bleak than that. Here's why. One, nearly a year later, the state has still failed to meaningfully punish those who carried out the deadly 1-6 assault on the Capitol, much less punish its organizers in Trump, Bannon, Giuliani, Christopher Miller, Josh Hawley, etc. Why does this matter? White backlash movements rely on a collaboration between vigilantes and the state. We see this most clearly in the local nature of coup attempts during Reconstruction and Jim Crow. Lawmakers encouraged supremacist violence and legitimized participants. Um, I just want to talk for a minute about like how crazy it is and and how normalized certain forms of craziness such as this are becoming and why that's bad. Uh, first of all, comparing the federal response to the January 6th riots to the failure of Reconstruction is insane. Uh, it could be I'm fired up about this because uh, I was actually just yesterday, I was in Montgomery, Alabama at the really excellent and really heartbreaking Legacy Museum. And like any decent treatment of African-American history, it gives a fair amount of attention to the failure of Reconstruction. Uh, I'm not going to pretend this is a major area of expertise for me, but if you're not American or just not familiar with this aspect of U.S. history, right uh, after the Civil War, black freed black people in the South were poised to really they're very eager to become participants in a new multiracial democracy. They race to get themselves educated, to get their kids ed educated, to register to vote. Uh, there was a horrifying backlash. There were, there were white terrorist groups, which is all they were, terrorists, 
who didn't want blacks to be part of democracy. They tortured and raped and killed countless black Southerners to deny them something that was by all rights theirs, to deny them the full fruits of the North's victory in the Civil War. The actual history is really complicated, but much of this occurred because the federal government basically didn't follow through on its promise of extending protection to freed slaves in the South. It effectively withdrew that protection and it left the fates of countless black people in the South in the hands of like truly bloodthirsty, deranged white terrorists. It's just one of the saddest periods in American history. We still live with the scars because things could have probably gone differently. Jump forward to January 6, 2021. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers this the same way I did, but the federal government launched a massive investigation to apprehend everyone they could apprehend and charge them however they could be charged. It was a horrible, alarming event and a disastrous security breach, but to compare the federal government's response to January 6th, to the actions it took leading up to the failure of Reconstruction is just astonishing and and sort of insulting to the victims of the failure of Reconstruction. Um, And just the way that kind of comparison is getting normalized among some members of our journalistic and academic class, I I think is alarming that this is like, that's considered a a fair analogy to draw. The other uh, insane part was this quote, Nearly a year later, the state has still failed to meaningfully punish those who carried out the deadly 1-6 assault on the Capitol, much less punish its organizers in Trump, Bannon, Giuliani, Christopher Miller, Josh Hawley, etc. To say someone like Josh Hawley, who who gave a thumbs up and a fist pump to those weirdos at the rally before they went crazy, it was like 90 minutes before they breached the Capitol and so on, uh, to say the state should punish him is not good. That's pretty crazy. Um, I got hung up on this tweet storm just because I think this constant refrain that we're on the verge of fascism is really bad. The idea that we should use the federal government to, I guess, prosecute Josh Hawley for giving a fist pump and a thumbs up to a crazy crab. That's pretty bad. Uh, and I'm worried about the extent to which this idea that we're on the verge of fascism or civil war just won't die, whatever the facts of the case, like If you think Trump was fascist, and we can set that aside, both the 2018 and 2020 elections were not good for fascism. Fascism was defeated in those cases. But when Trump wins, we're on the verge of fascism. When he loses, we're on the verge of fascism. Uh, I just, I'm I'm worried, again, where this is leading. Uh, I don't think we're going to get to a civil war, but I, I, this is not a normal way for public intellectuals to talk. And it just seems like there's, there's this real ratcheting up of tensions. Um, you guys should hop in the, oh, I see some people in the queue. I'll get to you in a minute. Uh, I just want to be clear, like Josh Hawley is a really malignant presence in American political life for supporting this, uh, stop the steel garbage. But can you imagine a worse thing to do if your goal is to take the wind out of his sails, to attenuate the influence of him and Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani, than to try to like overextend the state to punish them on the basis of questionable charges. I, I just think people should really think through uh, their approach to fighting what they see as fascism. All right, that's the end of my rant. Uh, you guys are free to feel free to ask me questions about whatever you want. My brain is a little bit fuzzy at the moment, even more so than usual, but I'll do my best. Hello, Chewy. Hey, um, I had a couple like bounce off thoughts of this, and it may coalesce into a question. We'll see. Um, I my my general thought is that. Um, the choice of the word fascism like has really become just such a bad choice of word because there are an incredible potential 
other number of threats to democracy around the world, including in America, that don't have anything to do with the concept of fascism, right? I, you know, there's, there's this book, of course, like How Democracies Die. Um, and it's really, a, a, it's oftentimes a gradual process that doesn't have anything to do with the kinds of things that people cry about when they're talking about fascism. And, you know, many of those things happen sort of like during the Trump years for sure. And it's alarming. And there is, of course, this alarmist, um, uh, like this alarmist sort of um, thing throughout American history. Um, I read one time that actually was one of the strengths of American democracy is that people do get alarmist. And so that like pulls people back from the brink. But I mean, to like, I, I just feel like I, I, <laughs> the left has gotten really distracted by the word fascism. There's a great Timothy Noah article, I think in TNR, the New Republic the other day, where he's like, these are the saddest bunch of of like revolutionaries I've ever seen in terms of talking about like the January 6th people yeah. who just basically like squabbled and cried ever since it happened and they got arrested. Well, um, but I, I, I just think it's important to like, we, yeah, I, I, I'm agreeing with you, but we can put this in context. Like there was a horrible security breach. It, it's yeah, terrifying. Yeah, they were able to do that, but they were mostly schmucks. There was a exactly. character involved here called the QAnon shaman. And this, yeah. this is not like, Reconstruction failed because the fascist terrorists won. They they won. They really controlled. Yeah. It. I just. I. Something gets me about the inability to understand that, like the threats facing us in 2021, might not be the threats facing us hundreds of years ago. And and I think people want to live in like. One hundred percent. Anyway, sorry. Uh, no. Yeah. I. I mean, I feel you on that. It's like it's. People sort of exist in their intellectual interests, which is understandable. And I think like we're all creating stories in yeah. our mind, right? That's just what we do as humans. And you can get kind of trapped within your story. And I think that's what a lot of, pe- a lot of people do. Um, I, I just like, when I did this whole fascism thing throughout the, the Trump years, I just kept thinking like, okay, I, I get it. It's fine to be alarmist. Um, but I like, you're going to have to prove a whole lot more before I be able to, see, like I'm able to see this for fascist. And clearly this didn't coalesce into a question. But just, <laughs> I was wondering if it was going to, and I thought there was something there, and there probably was that I've already forgotten. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I just want to like bounce off that. <laughs> no, I, I, I definitely agree with you. Thank you, Chewy. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce your name right. I, I do. If I get that right, I do. I believe is a first time caller. I do. You're going to want to uh, unmute your microphone. All right, I'm going to skip to Gus. Gus, what's up? Hi. Uh, you know, hey. I fascism might be the wrong terminology here, but um, I have a, a couple of remarks, which is uh, I don't think it's right to view January 6th in a vacuum, which is how you seem to be phrasing it. I think it has to be viewed in the context of, I don't know, three months and maybe six months of Trump and his allies um, very openly saying how they plan to spin the election outcome. Um, And that includes both everything leading up to the election, includes all the litigation in the months after the election and culminating in January 6th. so I don't, you know, I don't know if you fascism might be the wrong word, but this was part of a, there was a bigger picture going on here. And the, the other comment I have is, is I think, um, 
you know, you talk about this, and I've seen, for instance, Glenn Greenwald post about this, and he's right, which is these sort of laments that, as you put it, you know, it's a bunch of schmucks who are um, the ones who are facing, you know, prison time and fines right now. But if you're going to lament what's happening to them, I mean, you sort of um, saying nobody's responsible. Right. If you're, if you're then critical of the idea that maybe someone like Giuliani needs to be investigated or Bannon. Obviously, the, the Hawley thing sounds a bit more questionable. Um, yeah. And, and I, guess, I guess the third comment I have is in terms of what people's fear is going forward is, you know, what will you call it if come 2024 you have Republican officials in various positions at both the state level and then ultimately at the congressional level who um, yeah. refuse to certify an election? No, those are all good questions. Um, well, let me start with the first one. I mean, I Trump telegraphed for a long time that he was going to say the election was stolen from him, whatever the results were. And that coalesced into a pretty bad conspiracy theory that we're still dealing with today. But to me, there's an element of, of fighting the last war. If you're going to pretend this is really at root about white supremacy or fascism, I mean, I think we agree on on that. If if you want to... It, it's just yeah we 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 don't need to call it fascism or um, yeah no i mean like, if the question is is it is it bad and a threat yeah i just i just cannot imagine a worse way to fight that threat than to saber rattle about arresting josh Hawley. um th- this was in my note it, look if evidence came out that steve bannon did something truly illegal or rudy giuliani did something truly illegal uh but but the bar there should be pretty high. You're talking about the federal government prosecuting people. These are people I completely loathe. But um, I, I just think like it's it's much more difficult to try, try to actually figure out how to not have a society where a significant chunk of the population believes truly gonzo stuff. And I, I think I just question this um, this tactically. I don't think I'm questioning whether or not it's a threat. I, ju- I just think people are sort of maybe misdiagnosing it, if that makes sense. Maybe, but then I, I, the other point I would raise is that, you know, and in, in we may not have effective laws on the books, and I don't know how you would craft effective laws for this, but um, January 6th looks a lot like proof of concept of stochastic terrorism. Well, yeah, but, there, but you can, I just, I, I think you need, you can't outlaw people saying an election was stolen, because maybe at some point an election will be stolen, or maybe you, I, you just, there's, there's, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I know that, but the point is, is that we now have this um, this framework through the internet where you can uh, propagate bad ideas, for lack of a better word, and gin people up into yeah. acting out in the real world in ways that didn't exist ten or twenty years ago. Sure, and I and I'm of the opinion that there is no legal solution to that that wouldn't cause more harm than it would prevent. I, I'm okay with like limited solutions involving some of the worst conspiracy theories getting aggressively pulled down. Although I think it's a game of whack-a-mole, but um, well, I'll let you go after this, but, but do you have something in mind that you think should be sort of the policy? Res- no, I, yeah. no, 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 I, I don't. Yeah. I just, I, I think that we, we as a society might have to entertain the idea that, um, you know, this hands-off approach might not be viable for the long term. Do, do you think it's been hands-off though? Because my sense is the, the major platforms have made, a pretty sometimes clumsy, but they they try to address no, right wing misinformation. It, it it comes back to the issue of that the only people who get really punished are the schmucks. 
yeah, uh, that's true. you know, you if you don't, well, because the schmucks are they're, they're schmucky enough to break the law in, in a way Steve Bannon might not be. Uh, yeah, but it's uh, you know, if you put out a call and you know that a certain percentage of the population is unstable and um, prone to believing stuff, and you have a big enough microphone, you shouldn't. No one should be surprised to have outcomes that look like this. Sure. I just, I just don't think there's a response that wouldn't, um, there's a lot of speech that could rile people up. You can't, you can't make a law against riling people up. I think there's a specific reason courts in the U S have ruled so narrowly in terms of what's, you know, fighting words and stuff like that. But you, you are, um, you're giving me a lot to think about. I, I, I do want to make sure I'm taking this seriously and I appreciate the call, I guess. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I, Colin, what's up? Hey, Jesse. I was just curious um, about what you thought of the response to January 6th. Um, specifically, uh, kind of dovetails into what other people were talking about, but um, the legal response as far as who was charged and the severity of their charges. Um, from what I've seen, I believe the QAnon shaman seems to have um, been been handed out sort of a a longer jail sentence than a lot of the people that were ostensibly doing the same thing as him. And from all I can tell is that it was because of optics. He was probably the, he was kind of the face of the, uh, the movement. He was the one that you saw on all the pictures. So he got the longest jail time and what would, what would an organization like the, ACLU say about that fact a few years ago that somebody's being punished for optics instead of the crime that they committed. Yeah. I mean, I think baked into the criminal justice system is that prosecutors have a lot of discretion to do that. It's, it's not fair. And I'm, I haven't followed all the cases closely enough. I'm open to the idea that prosecutors are trying to make an example of these schmucks the same way, I mean, there was a horrible history of overcharging Muslims who were caught in sort of FBI entrapment plots, like people who really could not make a bomb, who, yeah. who the, um, you know, an, an undercover agent would, would radicalize them, get them the supplies. And I, I think there's some similarities here where the feds like tend to overcharge. I, on the list of excesses of the criminal justice systems that I worry about, this isn't particularly high, but um, I, I tend to be on sort of the, in the Glenn Greenwald camp of folks who I think we should always be skeptical and we should be most skeptical when we are congratulating the federal government for ruining people's lives. Um, So yeah, I I guess that's my answer. And really when, not to sound too conspiratorial, but when you follow the money as far as where bills are passed after, after this, the, the Capitol police budget expanded, wildly due to the result of January 6th, which is like kind of an interesting development. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the details about that, but I do know that law enforcement, uh, like any other organization, like public facing organization has to make the case of this is why we need money. This is why we should exist. And I I do think there's something to the idea that uh, circa 2008 terrorists who are going to destroy America are, are now, white nationalists. And I think in both cases, there are serious instances of serious terror plots. But what's amazing is like, especially with things like the, um, 
the Governor Whitmer um, in Michigan, this plot that really fell <laughs> apart, apart upon further inspection, like I do think they exaggerate. And I just I hate when liberals who, if the defendants were Muslims, would rightly be saying, I want more details. I don't trust you to tell the truth in charging documents. I just think you should have that same degree of skepticism uh, now. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think the Whitmer plot, there were more FBI informants than there were actual people who were charged in the plot, which is it's kind insane. Of a, people should a, yeah, funny thing. go back if you haven't and read. I forget who, who wrote it, but some of the New Yorkers' coverage of like the most grotesque, grotesque excesses of the war on terror around like 2008 ish. It's just, it's incredible. Uh, anyway, thank you for the call, Colin. Yep, thank you. Joshua, what is up? Joshua, you got to unmute. All right, Joshua, get back in the queue if you can. I'm going to take Andres' call. Andres, what's up? Hey, Jesse. Um, So one of the thoughts that I had when I was listening to you kind of talk about this, and I think in general with a lot of the stories that, um, you know, you, you cover on Bar Pod and in general, is that I feel like a lot of the differences that come, especially with like culture war stuff, really aren't like big fundamental differences, but like stem from small differences, like in principles. So for example, like, let's say that you disagree on like the Kyle Rittenhouse case, then you might think that like white supremacy and white militias are a bigger threat to this country. Like if you interpreted that story to just be like, you know, this is a case of self-defense. The media, you know, like racialized it a lot. The coverage was bad. The way someone that listens to maybe like this or like something similar would, then you would get the notion that like, it's not as bad of a problem, but maybe if you listen to the mainstream narrative and you think that like, this is this like egregious example of like white supremacy, then you'd think that, uh, you know, it's an even bigger problem. So I feel like a lot of this stems from small disagreements over what happened and maybe like, exaggeration over the potential that it maybe has and i feel like that kind of applies a bit to january 6 like i agree that like it's bad that we haven't done anything about it but at the same time like it wasn't the same kind of coup that other countries that are in way worse positions have so i feel like it's kind of like a degree of exaggeration to like how bad it is i think that like Op, it, something can be very, very bad optically. The fact that people who wanted to overturn the results of the election were able to storm the Capitol and gate entrance to it is just a catastrophic embarrassment for the U.S. Part of my problem with calling it like an insurrection is, I mean, I guess technically it was, it's just, it, it was not a legitimate coup attempt. I mean, these the, everyone who was there walked out when the police showed up, there was not, they didn't barricade themselves there. They didn't try to shoot anybody. All the deaths came from that one Ashley Babbitt woman who rushed into cops with guns drawn, which is not something you should do. And then there were like, I mean, I shouldn't laugh. There are people who are dead, but there were heart attacks and overdoses. This was like a very motley crew. Um, I just want to make sure I'm getting your other point about like Rittenhouse. You're, You're saying, I feel like there is a big difference between saying like he was a misguided kid, you know, there for like sort of the right reasons, but the gun laws were sucked versus he was there to like protect whiteness or whatever, which was a claim I saw. Is that what am I missing there? Yeah. So I guess maybe to elaborate, like 
I feel like the way that you get to that conclusion is by like disagreeing about maybe smaller facts in the case, right? So for example, like part of the race angle comes in when like people didn't know what the race of his victims were or like when they thought that like he was explicitly like against BLM or that was the purpose of him being there. So it's like disagreements over like small facts that kind of like build up to these bigger implications of like, this was his motive. And because this was his motive, this implies this bigger thing for the country, if that makes sense. That's interesting. Um, uh, if anyone else wants to get in the queue, by the way, there's, there's no one after Andres happy to take more calls. I think there's a sense in which early on in the reporting of an incident, those small differences then blow up into entirely different narratives. I, I think that's like, I agree. I think that's an elegant way of describing this. And um, I keep, well, the last few episodes I brought up the Jacob Blake case because we just did a long bar pot on it. But I think it's similar there where it's like, if you have a completely different set of uh, facts about the Jacob Blake case, that will lead you to have a different response to what the police did. That will lead you to either think it does or doesn't fit into your own view of like whether cops are good or bad. And I don't know. I think that the point we're orbiting around here is like just having everyone share the same set of facts early on in the evolution of a new story would probably make a pretty big difference. Right. Totally. I, I agree. And I guess like I'll give one last anecdote to close it off. Cause I think it's a good example of this too, is like, for example, with the, with the Georgia incident, with the, uh, the AAPI like shooting and whether it was like racially motivated or not. Like, I remember that caused a big controversy in the sense that like, everyone started to speak up about this like epidemic of like Asian American crimes. But then I remember a lot of the coverage from, from you was like, well, if you look into the statistics, like, you know, there's not too much to back up that it was like an epidemic in the way that it was spoken. I feel like a lot of it comes down to like, well, that was the most public case on it. And if you didn't really read the follow-up and thought that it was purely racially motivated, then that adds to this belief that there's this greater thing happening in the country. That's a lot worse. Yeah, I think that's a good example of like why I sometimes get a bit too hung up on these fights and think think these fights over fairly subtle matters of fact are important. Like, so I forget how many, but I think he killed at least two or three white women, the Georgia guy, in addition to maybe five or six Asian ones. And then if you look at the details of the other cases, uh, there were there was a small subset of what appeared to be genuine hate crimes. But in many cases, these were random attacks by like homeless mentally ill people or random robberies against vulnerable victims. And again, I bet if you asked a lot of people, they would think that there was a string, a a scary big string of genuine indisputable hate crimes. And again, you see like the misunderstanding blossom from just different, different sets of facts. And I don't know, I I, I'm worried I'm going to be writing and talking about this increasingly bifurcated news landscape for years now because it just it feels like it's getting worse and worse uh yeah it's a depressing time uh, on that front hey, thank you andres uh mickey hey, how's it going hey jesse how are you i'm good mickey how are you good good um let me see if i can get this this idea succinct in my head um just kind of going off what you guys were both just talking about i feel something i've thought a lot about with trump is like I think we're in this very particular place where, you know, people that sort of, you know, I think, think like you and Katie feel like it's just like, it's like both sides are just, it's like Trump is terrible. He's, he's the worst guy to come in and be the like, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
wrench in the works of things to kind of like reset things, but he's the guy that everybody went with. And then on the other hand, you just have like people that are just, you know, just being completely insane and finding, you know, terrible oppression and everything and, and, you know, at every turn. And I think part of, of the issue is that right now people see the other side, people are just like, they're fascist or like, they're socialist or they're communist or something like that. So people have these super hard definitions of the other side. And I think that they sort of fail to understand like the, it's like people, so I know so many people I didn't, you know, I, I, I would never vote for Trump, but I know so many people that think that anyone that voted for Trump is evil because they're just like he's a racist and they look at something like his um his uh the muslim ban which which in my opinion is probably the worst thing that he actually ever really did like said slash did because he didn't really accomplish that much in the grand scheme if you think about it but they so somebody like me that would never vote for him would see that and just be like that's fucking super racist and and horrible yeah. and un-american but i think that for a lot of people that would never vote for him that are, are, are very much on the left, they would see that and they would be like, that's the red line. How could anyone ever vote for somebody that would say something like that? And I think it's a completely reasonable sort of gut level reaction. But then I yeah. think that they fail to understand how many people that probably like something like that probably doesn't even like matter to them or like it doesn't come up on their radar do you know what I mean? No, I, I, I've thought a lot about this. So Trump has a small – no, no, no I, Trump has a handful of like pretty bigoted things. There's that. There's the thing about Mexico sending their rapists. Um, I mean he, he proposed – I hate when people try to whitewash this stuff. He proposed while running for American president that we should ban all Muslims from entering. That's like the – definition of bigotry and yeah but i think the problem is a lot of people think that um the average likely or or probable republican voter i don't know they they people don't really see the world the same way we do they don't have the same red lines as we do and i don't think it makes them racist Mm -hmm. not least because trump gained among a lot of non-white groups from 2016 to 2020 and it's just I really like the book Strangers in Their in Their Own Land by um Arlie Hochschild. I can never pronounce her name, but she went she went to this uh, I think it's Lake George, Louisiana, and she talked to Trump voters. She's a Berkeley professor and she came up with an account of how they came to support um the GOP and all these politicians who had in many cases destroyed like the bayou in their backyard because of lax environmental policy. She came up with a version of how they came to be Republican voters where she would tell them, here's why I think you vote GOP. And they would say, yeah, that's right. She came up with a story that they themselves recognize. And I think as hard as it is for me to understand why people vote for Trump, although I increasingly understand that some people just do it as a fuck you because they really, they really hate the way the left presents itself. And a small yes. part of me is sympathetic to that. I, I think it would really help to try to come up with an, a mental model of Trump voters that is maybe a little bit less like I'm a crazy racist or I hate Muslims because that none of that worked like it doesn't convince anybody it isn't how they see themselves and i think you're right that there's a way to not excuse it but also like not let the conversation stop there um if that's what you're getting at yeah yeah to to very quickly sum up i it, it i was talking about it with my brother we were basically having this conversation and i was just like 
I think it's the kind of thing where like, if there was a big terrorist attack on the street, like in America, like, you know, tomorrow or something, I bet if you went up to almost like any very regular person, like a not super online person of any race or something and any background. And if you were just like, Hey, do you think like, maybe we should, you know, if there was a big Muslim terrorist attack and you were like, should we, you think we should ban Muslims for a minute? I bet like a lot of people would just, casually be like yeah i guess so it's like my point just being that's a really shitty thing but i think that like people's instincts are probably not always as like pure as some people just assume them to be i don't know yeah. if, i don't know well, if that and, and, well, and also p- people are capable of holding like or at least responding to polls in a reactionary way but then in their day-to-day that's personal I mean. life probably people are weird they can probably treat their muslim neighbor like any other neighbor and it and i think there's very ugly sides to human nature that Trump did a good job tapping, but I, I just don't feel like we've really come up with effective countermeasures. Those of us who don't, who don't want uh, people like Trump in power. Um, well, thank you, Mickey. I appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah. Jo- Jopa, I believe you're a first time caller. How's it going? Hey, Jesse, I'm doing good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. Okay. So as I've been listening I, I don't really have much to add specifically to the Trump issue in terms of uh, what you were just discussing with M- Mickey. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I just want to ask a question to you and to basically everybody else in this call. And that that's basically in terms of um, when I was listening to you guys talking about your issue, I believe that as a society, we, we're focusing way too much on macro in terms of you for GOP or Trump, and I believe that a big issue uh, in American society and in modern society is the emphasis we're putting on um, explaining the individual with um, masses. Yeah. Basically, saying you're able to sum up why people would be voting one way or another based on groups. So that's one thing that I think um, is unfair of us to do when we're discussing these issues. Uh, Another thing I'd like to add is um, personal responsibility and everything. So when we were talking about um, like Kyle Rittenhouse earlier and when we were talking about Trump even being bigoted, um, while it is easy to see people as bigoted because he certainly said bigoted things, um, and I have no doubt that he probably is bigoted. He comes from like a higher society in New York City, the most segregated city in America. Manhattan is the most segregated area in, in America. Um, but I think that we're focusing heavily on holes in terms of the entire population um, or just in every issue, every social issue. Uh, we tend to focus too much on holes when in reality, um, like, let me ask you a question. Like when you're dealing with a problem that like voters would face, like if you're dealing with a financial issue or a medical issue, um, it's all on you when it comes down to that issue, like things happen. So do you think that basically to sum up my, my redundant point is, do you think it would be beneficial to Americans and to like everybody on a whole, if we started focusing more on personalized issues and fixing like our own problems rather than uh, discussing whole socioeconomic issues. 
Um, yeah, thank you. That's a good question. I, I think I just view the two as like very closely connected. Uh, I mean, I just recommended that book, Strangers in Their Own Land, and that was a case where people's personal sense of their responsibilities and their political allegiances had a lot to do with like you know what they saw as the EPA's role in interfering with their ability to hunt or a local politician, a local co- oil company's ability to give them a job, stuff like that. So um, I, I see you drop that. I, I don't want to not duck your question, but I, I, I just view it as like personal issues as, as totally connected to structural ones. Frankly, I think that's like one of the big reasons that mom, you know, I'm still a lefty. Shauna, how is it going? Can you hear me? Did I do this I, correctly? You did it correctly. You're loud and clear. Okay. I thought I would just preface preface this with two quick things. One, I'm a total um, normie. I think that's the term that y'all use on bar pod. So I apologize from the get-go. <laughs> um, no, normies are, we need more normies in public uh, community <laughs> life. Thank you. So please don't skewer me. Um, and then secondly, uh, long time bar pod listener, first time Colin. And I'm basically just doing this as a way to get to um, Katie because we're actually neighbors and I keep wanting to get here over here for board games. Because Just show up at our house. I'll send you her address. It's fine. Yeah. We're on the same Island, but technically it's a peninsula, but she um, won't explain that. So yeah, uh, we're neighbors. So <laughs> I'm way too normie, but I do drive a, a Subaru. So maybe we can, maybe I'm cool enough for her. Um, anyhow, <laughs> just to give a somewhat, different perspective. Again, as a normie, I do consider myself a classical liberal, small L. Um, I did not vote for Trump, but I do vote for both Republican and Democratic candidates. And I can tell you as someone who, obviously, I live in Washington State, you know, we talk about the, I would call it fear associated with Trump because of his mean words and his big orangeness and everything about him that these words that come out spew out of his mouth and that he types but um you know it's i love how you both the previous caller and you both talked about personal responsibility and accountability because as much as i detest so much about trump and his character and his words I also know what it's like to live under a, I'll just be honest, a Democratic governor who has strong autocratic and dictatorship tendencies where we've lived under emergency. We have given our governor emergency powers in the state for in February, it will have been two years. So I just offer that. So you're basically, you're you're saying that uh, from your point of view, it's like mean words on the one hand versus, you know, uh, policies you view as unfair on the other. Absolutely. And I do, I put a big emphasis on myself and my family. Um, So not only am I a normie, I'm old. I've never been on Twitter. I don't feel the necessity, nor nor am I required to with my career. But I'm also the mom of four kids. And so personal accountability and um, talking about one's character and how we uh, live in community with other people is really important to me. But at the end of the day, I feel like I have to be responsible for that. And I don't expect my government to be 
responsible for me, good or bad. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for the call. I mean, I, I, my view is Trump severely messed up the pandemic in the other direction by not taking it seriously. And uh, I, I think there's just complicated trade-offs here. And I, I wasn't opposed to sort of the initial lockdown. And I, I guess I just, I would like to see a path back to the new normalcy where this is going to be a thing we're grappling with for a long time. But um, I think at the end of the day, for me, it's just, I, I just had so many differences with Trump, not just the awful stuff he would say, but he was basically a normal Republican president. And I, I, I was very opposed to those policies, but I, I just think it, it gets very different at the state level. Cause like the way a local governor or your school board, they can affect your life in surprisingly profound ways. So I think, um, it's just a different and maybe more proximate feeling thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it's important to have these discussions and to, and think about these things in, in a broader context, as well as understand people will often, especially when it comes to voting, people at the end of the day will vote on how they are personally affected, good or bad. Yep, that makes sense to me. Thank you, Shana. Um, okay, Andres and Joba, if, if you guys can both be... Um, quick. I think it's about time to wrap this up, but follow-up questions are totally fine. What's up, Andres? Hey, yeah, just a really quick follow-up to what Shauna was saying. It kind of reminded me of, like, this broader point of like, in order to actually make sure that, like, these policies are things that, like, we maybe complain about, like, change at the state level. It requires a lot of, like, local involvement that we frankly just don't do, like, in a lot of, like, democratic states. So, there was a really good video by Johnny Harris uh, published by the New York Times on this that talked about, like, the hypocrisy that liberals have when they, like, for example, will practice, like, nimbyism in California. And then you have, like, sky high, like, uh, rent prices and, like, record homelessness, right? So yeah. it kind of seems like similar to what she was saying in the sense that, like, it requires a lot of, like, personal responsibility, which is, like, absent from a lot of the liberal conversation. Thank you, Andres. Yeah, I, I, I um, got distracted. I've only watched half of that. It was like a mini documentary. I do want to watch the rest of it. All right, uh, Joe, I believe you will be our final caller. Let's end strong. It's an honor. Okay. Um, so earlier, I was kind of freestyling, asked a dumb question, uh, or worded it poorly, not adequately. Um, but here, I'll try to be a little bit okay. more articulate. So we were talking earlier, uh, Andres just touched on it about personal responsibilities. I was going to try to allude to a question about the pandemic with that, but I didn't do it well because I'm not a good talker. Um, but uh, with the notion of and the pandemic and the government's response, um, it's of my opinion, and I just want to know what your opinion on is. I think the lockdowns are um, the exact opposite of responsibility to the people because um, if people had personal responsibility, uh, they would be able to take the steps that they deem necessary for themselves to end it uh, or to minimize their own risk to COVID. But when we have a government basically holding the hands or worse, punishing the people by enforcing lockdowns or by enforcing restrictions, like basically mass surveillance levels in terms of vaccine passports, um, it's detrimental to society. Uh, You're basically raising, um, I'm not going to say children because they're adults, but you're changing the temperament of individuals in society by removing their personal freedoms um, in terms of quote unquote safety and health. So I was just wondering if you think 
because um, you said you're more liberal, that the lockdowns are over encroaching? Or do you actually think that we needed more lockdowns? And do you think that people aren't responsible enough to, to handle themselves? I think I view any difficult public policy issue as a matter of trade-offs, which is like a really boring answer, but like, I don't know. I went to grad school for public policy. This is what we talked about. I think, I think in the early days when we didn't understand what this virus was and we had limited treatment options and no vaccines, I, I think a lockdown, something like what we had, which did vary a lot from state to state, was necessary. Um, I, I think my view has shifted recently, especially – you. I don't really view this as a matter of, of like, in one move, you're encouraging personal responsibility. The other move, you're infantilizing people. I just think it's more complicated than that because other people's decisions can affect me and my family, uh, regardless of how responsible I am. And uh, an out-of-control pandemic is an out-of-control pandemic. I, I, where I do think that language makes a little bit of sense is, like, when you get to the point where everyone can get a vaccine if they want it. Everyone can get boosters if they want it. And, and I think we're at that point where even, you know, if, even if you're fairly poor, I, well, I can only speak to New York, but there, there's good vaccine access in New York. You get to a certain point where then I'm comfortable talking about personal responsibility. Cause like, okay, at this point, I, I don't think we can keep establishments closed because anyone who wants this vaccine could get it, but they've chosen not to at that point. I'm okay saying, if you go into an establishment with a lot of people and you have chosen not to get vaccinated, yeah, that's where I think personal responsibility comes in. But I, I guess I just don't view it in that more macro sense of like by having lockdowns in the first place, the government is harming people's dispositions uh, toward personal responsibility. Does that make yeah, that makes that makes good sense. And I think it's actually you said I was viewing in a macro sense. I mean, I I I probably I'm coming across as that, but. I guess I'm viewing it in like a super micro sense of person to person responsibility and the government shouldn't be like uh, affecting that with lockdowns or policies that determine what we can and can't do. But um, I, I do agree with you now where it's completely personal responsibility, but I disagreed with you when you said in the beginning it was more necessary because I personally didn't feel that way. But I mean, you went to grad school for this and I did not. So. Well, I wouldn't defer to me just because I went to grad school. We also might just have different political philosophies, which is uh, totally fine. But either way, I appreciate the dialogue. All right, All right guys. Uh, no one's in the queue. This was a nice 47-ish minute chat. Um, this one was very sort of off the dome. I think I only gave 45 minutes notice. Again, this is Katie's fault. But no, I thought it went really well. Um, the biggest thing I'll ask of any of you, if you think this show uh, is good or you get anything out of it, is spread the word. Ask your friends to join Colin, to follow me, to uh, follow the show. Uh, we're going to have more and more structured stuff coming up, like episodes revolving around one particular guest, in part because of this little uh, cross-country, well, not cross-country, third-of-the-country jaunt I'm on. I've been a little bit less like able to plan stuff. But it, it's been really nice uh, at the end of a day of travel to just be able to do these shows, and I really appreciate them. And I do hope you will spread the word and reach out to me either via the messaging function or there's other ways to get in touch with me. It's no mystery. If you have ideas of guests or of topics I should cover on the show, thank you so much for listening to Single-Minded Conversations, and we will talk again soon. Bye.